We're going to do a little bit of whiteboarding today. Haven't done the whiteboard in a while. Some of you have never even experienced the whiteboard, so get excited. Uh, we're going to answer the question together. Uh, what does it mean to be proud of something? Maybe think of something in your life where you're like, I'm really proud of this. Like, uh, what, what does it mean to be proud of something? Maybe it could be how you feel about it or how you talk about it. So what does it mean to be proud of something? We'll put our answers on the whiteboard. Self-confidence, maybe? Self-confidence. We have confidence in it. Or self-confidence if it's something about you. proud of something? How do you feel about it? What do you do with it? Accomplish. It feels like an accompli- something you've accomplished might be, okay, so if it's an accomplishment, you're like, I'm proud of it. Yeah. Like, I earned this degree, or I built this thing. It's like, I've accomplished that, and I'm proud of it. Yeah. It's something that other people you know that other people would also find of value. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you're proud of it, because it's like, there's or value. What was that? There's value. There's value to it. Or you know other people value it. Okay. So we'll say uh, it has value or other people value it, and so you are proud of it. Yeah, you know, we might say things to people like, you probably don't care about this, but you know, we were, here's this thing I did, and it's like, oh, yeah, interesting, but if they, if we know they value it, it's like, hey, here's this thing, and you're going to join in appreciating that with you. Pleased? It might, might be part be of accomplishment. But something you're pleased about, you're proud of. Yeah, we maybe don't share something where we're like, ah, I don't like how that turned out, and so I don't want to show it to other people or something like that. So we're pleased. It is interesting when it's like uh, our neighbor who works um, at like a a, a nursery garden place. He, he's complimented us on our like front yard landscaping. He said like, yeah, that's looking real good, Mitch. And it's like, this is a guy who like sells this stuff to people. And so now when I look at it, I didn't really realize before, like it wasn't really something I was proud of, but now I'm like, oh, Kelly thinks it's good. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of proud of it now, this front you know, landscaping. Anything else that we, what does it mean to be proud of something? Maybe what do you do with something you're proud of? Well, something that you provide. I mean, like a service? People say we're proud to be, to be a part of this neighborhood giving you this service kind of thing. Okay, so it might I be... Don't know what it is, but it's like you're providing something. Or well, it kind of goes back to what Bob said. Other people value it, so it's like we're proud to be here. So you said it's a pro- something you provide others need? Providing something others need or something? Yeah. Consider, uh, I'm going to share a few examples of my life, and maybe that'll give some you know, flesh and color to this. Um, I, it's, I'm proud to be, uh, I guess, a Star Wars nerd. It's not something I hide. It's something I'm willing to talk about. Or a Lord of the Rings nerd. Um, like I'm watching the new Rings of Power series on uh, Amazon, and it's like I'm not afraid to tell you that. So that's one of the things. Like I'm. It might be weird to be a Star Wars nerd or a Lord of the Rings nerd, but it's like 
I'm not afraid to share it. I'm proud of it. I, it's something I think is, uh, I don't know, unique or about me. Or it's just something I care about enough that it's like, yeah, other people can know about this. Um, I'm also proud of uh, where I went to seminary. I'm proud to say I'm a graduate of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. It's not, you know, I'm not like ashamed to say it. It's like, yeah, I'm proud to, that I went there. I feel like really, um, not that I'm going to like feel like I'm better than other people, but it's just like I appreciate that institution. And so I'm happy to have my name associated with it. Uh, and another thing is I'm proud of the denomination our church is a part of. I really love the Evangelical Free Church of America's uh, stance on how it majors on the majors, minors on the minors, uh, that they're des- we're desiring to have unity around those things, only those things that are essential to the gospel, not trying to have, you know, make, draw lines where they don't need to be drawn. And so I just love our denomination. I love that we're part of it. I'm proud of it. And perhaps we consider one way to figure out what something, one thing means is to consider what the opposite is. Um, so the opposite, what's the opposite of being proud of something? It might be that I'm embarrassed of it or uh, I'm ashamed of it. Like if, you know, my seminary that I went to all of a sudden, you know, was in the news for some really bad things, I might be a little ashamed to say, well, I went there. Or I could still be proud of it saying like, well, I'm... I know there's some bad things that happen now, but they have a great history when I was there as a that. But something we might be embarrassed of or, uh, you know, our denomination, if there's all of a sudden all these scandals breaking out, we might feel a little embarrassed or ashamed to be a part of it. And this whole series we've been doing in First Peter uh, called, it's called Different. It's really how to be different in a world that makes it difficult to be different. And what this passage this morning is getting at is... Uh, are you proud to be a Christian? Is that being a Christian, having, and that word is so like normal to us now, Christian, uh, but it was, you can see in the book of Acts, I didn't look up the exact chapter, but there's a chapter where they're in a city and it says, and it was there that they were first called Christians. This was like a word that got made up when these people were following Jesus, the Christ, and they're saying, oh, you guys are those Christians, you're those Christians. And so Peter's saying, like, are you proud to be a Christian? Is this something you're proud of? And then what does it look like, sound like, and feel like to be proud to be a Christian? And so that's really what this passage is answering, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, is how do you be proud to be a Christian? What would it look like to be take pride in that, to not be embarrassed of it, to not be ashamed of it? And in verse, he gives us several things. So verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4, uh, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. And so the first way to be proud to be a Christian is expect to suffer for it. Expect to suffer for it. It's not, don't let it be a surprise. It's like, don't be surprised that people don't like that you are a Christian, that you're a follower of Jesus. So we should expect to suffer for it. And he begins saying, beloved, like he's talking to them, not like, you know, kind of suck it up, don't be surprised that you're suffering. He's like, beloved, don't be surprised when this happens. Expect it. Plan for it. And he's basically saying we shouldn't, as followers of Jesus, when it comes, if there comes a moment where it's like, if people know I'm a follower of Jesus right here, I might receive some flack for it. I might be disrespected for it. People might not like that. And he's, we shouldn't in that moment say, this isn't what I signed up for. Peter's saying, no, this is what you signed up for. Uh, expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And Jesus said, 
Uh, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, not just this kind of one-time thing, and follow after me. And so Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, that's going to look like deny yourself and you know, follow me to, to death, to this world. That this world, he says, the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. And he kind of, Peter kind of frames it up, says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, this idea of fire that we talked about earlier in chapter 1, that how when you're experiencing these various trials and the suffering for your faith, he says it's purifying you like gold, or fire purifies gold, taking out the impurities of your faith, testing its genuineness. And so he's saying, see the, this suffering, if you're suffering for being a Christian, for people not liking who you give your loyalty to. He says, look at it as this fire that is uh, taking away impurities in your faith, that's making your faith even more genuine, testing it. And we can think of, uh, back to Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph, his brothers have done horrible things to her, to him, and he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. And we'll see by the end of this book that uh, really who's standing behind all suffering uh, all things that we might suffer for our faith is the devil, is Satan, the enemy of God and God's people. And so it's what the devil intends for evil, God intends for good, that this suffering uh, that somebody's bringing upon you uh, by them is intended that for you to abandon your faith. Uh, that's the devil's intention behind it. But what God's intention behind it is that you would have your faith purified. So what the devil intends for evil, God intends for good. And then in verse 13, he says, uh, Don't be surprised, but, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And so, first thing, how to be proud to be a Christian? Expect to suffer. Don't be surprised. Secondly, it's rejoice when you suffer. Why? He says, because uh, the sufferings of Christ, you're identifying with him. It's like, you're not the first person this is happening to. This happened to the very one you're calling your master, your teacher, your Lord. And so we're following in his path suffering. And then it says if we're sharing in his suffering, we'll also uh, rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's what Peter's been talking about. This whole path is suffering, then glory. You don't get glory without taking the path of suffering. And so he's saying you're on the same path as Jesus. And so accept the cost of being a Christian with joy. And I always look out in the Bible for these times when people react in a way that seems contradictory to what's happening to them. Uh, it's almost like you know, oxymoron. He's saying that the, even the title of this sermon, I did it uh, intentionally, Joyfully Suffering for Christ. And we think those are mutually exclusive. How can I have joy and suffering at the same time? Joyfully suffering, those don't go together. It's kind of like a, an honest politician too, too, too much, no. It's like an oxymoron, or uh, Jim Gaffigan, a comedian, says, uh, he's like, nobody, he talks about how he hates camping, and then he says, people always say uh, they aren't a happy camper, and he's like, are any campers happy? He's like, we're sleeping outside, so happy camper might be an oxymoron, I don't know. Uh, or jumbo shrimp, and I thought about making a football joke, but I'll just let you imagine what that could have been. Uh, but Acts 5.41, I'm just going to flip back there. Um, there's a story that a uh, couple, Peter, Peter being one of the people um, in this story, where they're getting beaten, they, the, the leaders in Israel of uh, Jerusalem, the religious leaders are telling them, uh, you need to stop talking about Jesus to people. Stop t- talking his name. 
And he said, if you don't, you know, you're going to suffer the consequences. And eventually they decide to let him go. But it says, but first they beat him first a little bit. They gave him a little bit of, you know, whips. And it's like, okay, we're not going to put you in prison, but we're going to beat you up for it. And then they send him out. And what, this, what it says in uh, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they leave, it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. And it's like, the, what hap, what's happening and their reaction to it seemed to, there's a total disconnect. We just got beaten up and they said we rejoice that we're kind of worthy to suffer for the name. And this is Peter who was doing this um, when that happened. And now he's writing this letter saying, rejoice when you suffer for the name of Christ, that, we come to, that we've been counted worthy to do so. Verse 14, third reason, uh, or third way to be proud to be a Christian, count yourself blessed when you suffer for being a Christian. Verse 14, he says, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So it's not just you, you should rejoice when you suffer, but also I'm blessed because I'm suffering. Why? Uh, he says, because the, uh, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And if we think all the way back, this whole letter, the theme is suffering, then glory. And back in First Peter uh, chapter one, verses six and seven, uh, or six through maybe through eight or nine, talks about uh, you're going through this thing, you're having the genuineness of your faith tested, and where it's going to end is praise and honor and glory when Jesus returns. And so he's saying your future is. Jesus is going to be approving of you. Like maybe the world isn't approving of you, but you're going to receive this praise and honor and glory. You're going to stand before Jesus and he is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And so it's this longing for that approval. But what I think he's saying here is uh, that glory, that honor, that praise um, that God's going to bestow on you in his presence, that's actually coming into the present. That as you are suffering, you can know that God is with you, and he's approving of you, saying, you know, that's my boy, or that's my girl, saying, uh, yes, well done, like his pleasure and his smiling face uh, is upon us, even now as we suffer, and we can experience that. And then in, it's like verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, you get a taste of it now, even now as you're suffering, that glory, that honor, praise you're going to receive in the end. And then in verse 15, he says, uh, how do we... Uh, be proud to be a Christian, verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Basically, don't suffer as a wrongdoer. Suffer for being a Christian. Don't suffer for being a wrongdoer. Don't suffer as someone who's just kind of, you know, if we went back to uh, what we saw in, the, in this book where Peter's talking to us about submitting all of you submit to the governing authorities. Slaves, submit to your masters. Wives, submit to your unbelieving husbands. And he's basically saying, like, yes, you have a different king, you have a different lord, but that doesn't mean you're supposed to look like rebels against the Roman Empire. Like, Caesar's not your king, Jesus is. But then he says, but submit to Caesar. Honor the emperor, submit to these governing authorities, because you're not supposed to be just, it's like, you're not my king, so I'm not going to follow any of your laws. I mean, imagine that if all of us just went out and were like, the, you know, these, these police aren't my boss. This mayor isn't my boss. Like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what you say. Jesus is my king, and so I don't need to submit to you. But it's actually the opposite, is that you are free of these people's authority, and yet submit to their authority as good citizens, of people who are doing good and not doing evil, not doing bad. So don't suffer as a wrongdoer. 
it's, that's not something to be proud of. And if you think back to, in the Old Testament, there's um, these four friends, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and they literally, Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, comes into Israel, takes them out of their land, hauls them off to Babylon, and says, we're going to change your names, we're going to change how you look, we're going to change how you dress, and you are going to serve our government, you're going to serve the emperor of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. And they don't say, no way, we're not doing it. But they put themselves to being the best servants possible of Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. They even talk honoring him. And yet there's still times when they draw a line. Uh, they, there's this big golden statue that gets made. And the king says, you all need to bow down to this at these certain hours of the day. Everyone else bows down. And Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego just stand there. So they're like, no, we don't bow to anyone but our God. And so they draw a line there, even though all these other things are working for the good of that empire that took them out of their land and brought them out into exile. I mean, can you imagine that? If another country came in and just ripped us out of this land and brought us over to wherever it is, and it's like, you work for us now. Say bye to your family, bye to your friends, bye to your house, bye to everything you own. You work for us now. Uh, that's what he's talking about, is that they, uh, we should not be wrongdoers, but should be doing good showing ourselves to be good citizens. Verse 16 is another reason, or another way we can be proud to be a Christian. Uh, verse 16, he says, Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, so you're not supposed to suffer as a wrongdoer, you're supposed to suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So, what he's saying here is, don't be ashamed of Christ. Don't be ashamed to suffer as a Christian, but glorify God in that name. Own it. Be proud of it. And there's this, really what we come out of the Bible is another thing that maybe feels like an oxymoron. Two things that don't together go together is humble confidence. That we have complete confidence in Jesus. I, we just own it. That he's my king. I'm following him. I'm a Christian. I'll wear that name. And yet there's this humility. We're not you know, braggadocious about it. I don't even know if that's a word. Sounds like something Mary Poppins made up or something. But uh, it's like um, we shouldn't be these people that are running around breaking all the rules. And we should be confident in Jesus. But there's this humility to it. Is that There's this gentleness. There's this respect, this deference to other people. It's like we're going to say yes as much as we can. And, but we're going to say no on those things where it crosses a line. So we should be some of the best employees, some of the best uh, citizens of the government. Because we serve a king who actually makes us humble and confident at the same time. And here we, hear, we see again, what's the opposite of ashamed? It says, don't be ashamed to be a Christian. And the opposite of being ashamed uh, would be confident. We're proud. We're not hiding it. We're not embarrassed if others know it. That well, You're a Christian? You're one of those people? Uh, we're not afraid of it. And verses 17 and 18 really answer, well, why is this suffering going on? It starts with verse 17 and starts with the word for. Uh, which could also be translated as because. And so it's like, okay, well, why is this happening? Why this suffering? For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And so it's like, well, why is this suffering happening and how does it glorify God? It's really that, that end time judgment when Jesus comes and people will stand before him to give an account. It's beginning now. It's this, this fire, this fire that tests things and it's either going to purify that thing or destroy that thing. And that fire from, 
the end time judgment that's going to test what we're, what someone's actually made of is it is happening now. It's either purifying or destroying, and it's happening at this time. And so uh, he's saying the more genuine our faith is shown to be by that fire, the more glory God gets. Is that um, John Piper, a famous, uh, well, I guess somewhat famous pastor, says what God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. And so it's as our faith is shown to be more and more genuine that our hope is really in Jesus and God and what is going to happen uh, in the future for us. Now God is more and more glorified because we're, we're more and more detached from anything else as our hope. And so the test of judgment reveals our deepest loyalties, our deepest commitments, priorities. And the, and the end for us, as Peter says in chapter 1, verse 9, is the salvation of your souls. You're having your test your faith tested now, and the outcome is the salvation of your souls. But then in uh, chapter 2, verse 8, he said, what is the outcome of those who don't obey? They're, they're destined to uh, not obey and to eventually the fire test them. And when he says scarcely, uh, in verse 18, he's quoting from the Old Testament, scarcely doesn't mean barely. Like, you know, if believers are going to barely be saved, what do we say about people who aren't believers? He's saying uh, it doesn't mean barely, but with difficulty. Uh, it's not easy that it is a road of suffering and then glory. And Jesus said the way is narrow and hard that leads to eternal life. And there, he talked about in Matthew chapter 24, verse 13, he said, it's necessary, necessary for us to endure until the end in order to be saved. And so there's this path of suffering, hard and narrow road that then ends with this praise and honor and glory from Jesus himself. And his summary of, in some ways, is a summary of the whole book. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It's like, if you want to sum up everything he's saying, that's one of the lines that sums it up. Uh, if we're suffering according to God's will, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So there's trust. And who are you trusting? Uh, this faithful creator. And it's interesting, why creator? Why didn't he say to a faithful savior or a faithful Lord? Why do you say creator? And I, get, I think it gets you in this stance of seeing God created all of this. He created all these people and he's in control over all of it. There's none of it that doesn't belong to him. And entrust yourself to that one, the person who created both you and the one at whose hands you're suffering, the person who's reviling you and disrespecting you. He created all of you. Uh, he's got it all. And so entrust yourself to him, and not just creator, but a faithful creator, that God uh, is going to work this out. You can believe his promises. And then he says, while doing good, is that we shouldn't suffer as an evildoer, but as someone who's bearing the name of Jesus. And really the main topic of this paragraph and of the whole letter is about suffering because you are a Christian, suffering because you're a follower of Jesus. And Peter, I think, is applying what he heard Jesus himself say. If you want to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. And after that, Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me now, I'm going to be ashamed of you later in the future when I come uh, in glory. And if we will not identify ourselves as his followers now, he will not identify with us as one of his followers in the future. If we deny him instead of denying ourselves, then he will deny us. And Peter's really getting at that theme, that how you, I know you're suffering, but remember it's about 
uh, denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him. And in the end, there's glory when he returns. Again, you're following the same path as he did. And I've been thinking about this throughout this letter. And what is a, a common situation that maybe we see that would help us really get into when I'm standing with other people and I have this choice to say I'm a Jesus follower or I have this choice to not say it, what's like a, a way to illustrate that? And there's this theme you see in a lot of movies. Um, one of the most recent ones was, uh, uh, it's like happens in so many movies, it's hard to pick anything. But in the series um, Stranger Things, um, there's these group, it's on Netflix, and you're curious, and it's uh, got monsters and whatnot. But there's these group of kids um, kind of like in you know middle school and high school, and they all are a bit a bit nerdy. They like play Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, they are you know spend just hours doing that, and they're kind of the nerdy kids at school. Which you know I'm I don't, I don't say that making fun of them because I was one of those kids. So woohoo, Stranger Things is like my childhood. Uh, no, but it's except for the monsters. Uh, <laughs> um, but there's there's these nerdy kids that play Dungeons and Dragons, um, and in this last season that just happened, one of the kids. Sorry, it's a bit of a spoiler, but one of the kids like gets accepted onto the basketball team, and so the basketball team is kind of like the cool kids, the jocks, you know, the people that are more popular. And so he's playing basketball, um, and he doesn't really associate with his old friends anymore. He's not really playing Dungeons and Dragons with them, and he's on the basketball team. And there's a point where they're like, Sinclair, do you do you know these guys? Do you know these nerds? And you know, it's kind of like this. What's he going to say in that moment if he says yes? Now the basketball team is like, what? You're not who we thought you were. We thought you were one of us. We were one of them. Or he can say, no, I don't know him. And then, you know, the look that's going to be on those other kids' faces is like, what are you talking about? Like, what? We've been friends, you know, since whatever age. And so this theme that happens in lots of movies uh, is something we experience in our lives. And let me, it was like two weeks ago, this thing happened to me that really made it apparent. Um, I hurt my shoulder playing disc golf uh, with Brian and another guy, uh, and I heard this audible rip, which is usually not a good thing to happen for your body. Uh, and so I called my doctor, and they gave me a referral to go to a physical therapist. And I've been seeing her, I should have seen her this past week, but I COVID. But I think I had four, about four appointments with her. And at one of the appointments, she was asking um, about our church. Like, how did our church start? Like, why did our church start? And I realized in that moment that there was a non-weird way to describe to her how our church started. And then there was a weird way to describe how our church started. The non-weird way is like, oh, you know, our denomination helped us get started. You know, some people agreed to help it with us. And then, you know, we just started, you know, meeting together. And then we had these Sunday services. That's all very non-weird, easy for someone to swallow, easy for someone to accept. All would make sense to her. But then there's this... Other, there's a weirder way to say it, which would be, uh, well, we prayed about all these towns, and we felt like in Woodstock, um, God was sending us here because there weren't enough churches telling people about Jesus, and we really think people need Jesus. We want to see them saved. That's a weird way to answer her question. You know, not for us, but for her. And so I answered it the non-weird way, and afterwards I was like, huh. I mean, this is like in the moment, after right after I said it, I'm like, oh, I like filtered. I filtered it for her. I made it acceptable to her ears. And then I wanted to talk to her about um, physical therapy, and I've been like reflecting on it, like what does this teach me about like my spiritual life, like this process? It's just been fascinating that I went to my doctor, and they prescribed me a few 
medications, and I said, but isn't my back, or my, this was for my back originally, and then I'm falling apart, so my back and my shoulder, I've seen physical therapy, but I was like, what, isn't, our, isn't my back just going to keep hurting after I take these meds? And she's like, well, we think we'll send you to physical therapy, so I go, and I'm just thinking about, like, how she's getting at the root cause, she's, you know, move my shoulder in all these ways, and my back, trying to figure out where is actually, why does my back hurt, what is actually hurt about my shoulder, and then prescribing these, you know, exercises that I need to do, and I've just been thinking through all that, and I wanted to bring up this spiritual topic like shortly after she asked about the church. And then I was like, man, I kind of missed an opportunity there. And then I was thinking, I've been asking, you know, Jesus, what are you teaching me through this? And I was like, that would sound weird to her. It would be more acceptable to say, I've been reflecting on what God is teaching me through this. God, more general, everyone can accept God. But if I'm talking about what's Jesus teaching me, you mean the guy that died 2,000 years ago? How is he teaching you anything? How does he reel in your life right now? I mean, we have these, these stories about it, but how could he be teaching you at this moment, like interacting with you like a real person? And I realized there's these two ways. Um, well, I was going to draw it up. There's like, imagine kind of like a, a chart, like non-weird ways to talk about our relationship with Jesus, weird ways to talk about our relationship with Jesus. And I was going down this way of talking in non-weird ways. This will be more acceptable to her. She'll think I'm less weird. Like, this is a way I can talk that she'll understand it. But then there's this way that's more weird, but also more real of a description of what my life as a Christian is like. And so, you know, the label Christian isn't that weird these days. Like, that's just, you know, so common. But I was realizing that uh, it's not really weird to be a Christian, but what's really weird is to talk about following Jesus. Like, he's a real person that we have an actual relationship with. And I was you know, asking myself, why was I doing this? Why did I want to sound less weird to her? Why did I want to be more accepted by her? And two reasons I came up with. One is uh, strategic. We think it's strategic anyway. We think it's strategic for someone to not think we're weird because then we think we'll have more of a chance to talk to them about Jesus. That we tell ourselves, the less weird this person thinks I am, the better chance I have to talk to them about Jesus. If they accept me now, you know, then I'll have a chance for them to accept my message. And we're kind of telling, showing people, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but see, I'm just like you. Like, I'm not weird, and that means you can be my friend, and that means someday maybe you'll listen to what I have to say about Jesus. But if we don't stick out at all to people, uh, we really lose our opportunities to talk about Jesus when people notice there's something different in the way we talk, not just we hope... I'll just do lots of nice things and be a really good person, and then they'll ask what's going on with you. Uh, but what Peter actually says is, uh, when people ask you for a reason for your hope, while you're suffering, give them a response. When people are treating you badly because of your faith, and you still have this joy, you still have this hope, like you're being treated so horribly, but your reaction to it is completely different than what I would expect if I was going through that same situation. Like, where's your, what's going on there? Why, you know, why do you act that way? Where's your hope? And so we hope that if we show people we're like them, uh, that they'll want to talk to us. But if we're just like them, why would they want what we have? So first, we think it's strategic. That's why we say things in less weird ways. At least this is why I do it. Um, second is fear. I was asking myself, what do I believe is at stake here? Like, if I tell her something like, Jesus has been teaching me, and I feel like what he's saying to me is this. Very weird, but I didn't want to say it like that to her. And so it's like, what do I believe is at stake? If I say that, 
what do I think is at stake? What do I think are the consequences? What do I think is going to happen if I say that? We believe something is at stake. And Jesus said the two greatest temptations for walking away from him are worldly stuff and worldly status. That worldly stuff are we get caught up with the cares of the world and those weeds and thorns just choke out uh, what our faith in him. We just get distracted by money and stuff and taking care of our things, you know, whatever it is. Uh, or worldly status. He says it's like uh, the gospel gets planted, but the root is shallow, and so when that suffering or trial or temptation comes, burns it away. So worldly stuff, worldly status. We put our hope in it. Our belongings or our belonging. And worldly stuff, belongings, worldly status, our belonging in the world. It's what we have and what others think. And so you might think, or think about, well, what do I have? We might feel like that's at stake. If I'm weird... Uh, this is at stake. It's you know we're probably not likely to lose things directly. Like the government isn't in a position where they are uh, coming and taking away Christians' things. Um, but we maybe are in a situation where it's like, well, if I am weird, I'm gonna have less opportunities. I'm not gonna ha- get this job to make this money, and so I'm gonna have less things. My place in this world, the things I have and the things that I enjoy doing, I'm gonna have less opportunity for that. But secondly, what others think of me, this is really probably the primary one that we are afraid of. People's opinion of us. Do they respect me? Are they going to talk about me uh, behind my back? Are they not going to invite me to stuff? Are they going to criticize me? I say a weird thing to my coworker, and are they going to be like, you're one of those people? Like, are they going to criticize me? And most people will not talk about us badly to our face. We're afraid of how they're going to talk about us when we walk the when we go, you know, walk away, and then everyone else in our department is like, oh, they're just so weird. Or we don't even invite to things. Like, we're all, everyone's going out to, I don't know, a bar or something on Friday night after work, and it's like, well, don't invite Mitch, because, you know, he's one of those super religious people. Like, I'm Catholic, so I, you know, I get, I'm religious, but he's like super religious. He's like super Christian. So we're not going to bring him to this thing. Uh, they might insult us or look down on us. Uh, they might... Uh, we might be afraid they'll gossip or mock us or we'll lose respect and we'll be the butt of jokes or not taken seriously. Like, well, we were all were talking about politics and then, you know, Mitch brought up this thing about like, his hope in King Jesus as opposed to his hope in uh, President Biden or President Trump. And then it's like, uh, now everyone who just heard me say that respects my opinion in political matters less. I no longer have a voice. I'm not saying this has happened to me, but it's what we're afraid of that if I talk about my hope in Jesus, or like he's a real person to me, people are going to be like, yeah, we don't really care what you say. You're weird. We don't, and we want that. We, and we don't want people to also think, oh, you just think we are better than us. Or we don't want people to draw wrong conclusions. Like, I'm a Jesus follower, uh, but not one of those Jesus followers that is this, this, or that. We, don't want, we want to, really, it's managing our image, managing people's opinion of us. And that's what I realized I was doing with my physical therapist. I was managing her image of me, how she saw me, what she thought of me. And that's why I wasn't willing to talk weird about my relationship with Jesus. And so are we re- willing to risk losing worldly stuff and worldly status for Jesus? Are we willing to risk others thinking we are weird uh, for following Jesus? And really, what we want deep down often isn't wrong. It's just about the source we're going to to get that thing. It's really misplaced hope. That's what Peter, First Peter, has been all about. Miss, where is your hope at? 
And what we want deep down, what others think of us matters. But what should matter most is what God thinks of us. Deep down, we want someone's approval. We want someone to be pleased with us. We want someone to accept who we are. And the problem is just the source that we're looking to for that acceptance, approval, and pleasure that we should look to God. And Peter says, you can have it. Praise, honor, glory. When Jesus comes back, like, look, you get it from him. And what we have, like, it's not a bad thing to have stuff. Um, but Peter's saying, it doesn't matter what you lose here, because think of what you're going to have, what you're going to be given. You're going to be given this place of security and belonging uh, and safety in God's kingdom. And so it's not so much about stop wanting that stuff. It's about find a better source for it, a source that actually is lasting and fulfilling. And so I was asking myself, as I was talking to my, my physical therapist and keeping things to myself, not saying things how I would normally say them to one of you guys, Am I ashamed of Jesus? And am I ashamed of talking about my relationship with him? Uh, I felt like it was okay to talk in ways that make me seem less close to him than I actually am, to make him seem less real, to make him sound less important to me. Like, you know, I, I have stuff I believe, but it's like not that, it's not crazy stuff. And Peter himself knew this exact pressure, that when he was following Jesus, uh, Jesus said, the you know, final night before he died, said, you all are going to abandon me. You all are going to say you don't know me. And Peter's like, no, I'm not going to do that. And he's like, you are, Peter. Before the rooster crows three times, uh, you're going to deny knowing me three times. Uh, you're going to, he didn't say it in this way, but you're going to be ashamed of me. You're going to be embarrassed of me. You're going to be afraid to identify yourself with me. And Peter's like, no, I would never do that. And then he did it. And so he denied knowing Jesus instead of denying himself because of what it was going to cost him. Am I, these, all these people are going to hate me. They're going to reject me. They might throw me up on a cross right beside him. And so he denied Jesus because of the cost. And what Peter learned in the end, which I find, you know, this whole thing about if you're ashamed of Jesus now, he's going to be ashamed of you. And we, all, and we might be like, oh my gosh, have I ever been ashamed of Jesus at one point in my life? Uh, and the answer to that is... Uh, I guarantee, yes, uh, I guarantee this week you may have had a time when you were ashamed of Jesus. And, but what we see between Jesus and Peter is that when Jesus is resurrected, he goes to Peter and he calls to Peter from his boat. He's returned to his day job. And then he asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter denied knowing him three times. Asked him three times, do you love me? And what Peter learned is that Jesus is always more faithful to us than we are to him. And he knew that we would have times when we're ashamed of him. He knew we'd have times when we shrink back from identifying ourselves with him, from taking on the name of Christian proudly. He knew it. And if we could be perfectly faithful to him, there was no need for him to die. Is that This is a relationship where he is the perfect uh, partner in the relationship, and we are very imperfect, and he's already died for all of our failures to be faithful to him. And so when we're ashamed, it shouldn't be, when we're ashamed of Jesus, we don't have to hide from him in shame. We can come to him and say, I'm sorry, would you please help me transfer my hope from what other people think of me to you? It's an opportunity for us to go deeper in putting our hope in Jesus in those moments. And we're really in the same situation as Peter's readers. Back in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, he says, You haven't seen him, but you love him. You haven't seen him, but you trust in him. 
And Peter was in a situation where he did see Jesus physically, but these readers, 40 years later, they haven't. And so we're in the same situation as them. You might think, well, it's easy for you to say, Peter, like you walked with him, and he's like, uh, yeah, but I really messed it up. I still denied him. And we might read these people and be like, well, they were living back then, so it's easier. But no, they're in the same situation as us. They didn't see Jesus physically, but yet they love him, and they trust him. And so I made it my goal with my physical therapist, the next appointment, to say something weird. <laughs> that was my goal. I just want to say something weird that I feel uncomfortable saying. And my goal was to say Jesus' name and to talk like he's real. Not just talk about God, not just talk about church, but to say his name. And uh, she immediately stopped working on me, uh, helping with my shoulder, and she said, you're weird, get out. No, that's not what happened. Uh, it was way less dramatic than that because uh, she didn't really say much. She said, because uh, I, I said, you know, you know I'm a follower of Jesus, so I've been asking him, uh, what are you teaching me through this process? Um, and then she, I shared with her, and she was kind of like, yeah, I can see that. And I was like, well, that kind of didn't go very far. And I said, well, what's your faith around? She said, I'm Catholic, and she attends a Catholic church. And, and it was just... So it wasn't weird to her at all, <laughs> right? Like, I had this whole thing, like, what's going to happen if I say Jesus is teaching me something? And the lesson was, I mean, really nothing happened. Uh, and it was okay. I was okay. She was okay. And so, again, last night I was getting dirt from this guy for my lawn, and I'm talking to him, and I just said, I'm just going to bring up why we came to Woodstock. And I told him, like, you know, we came here for X, Y, and Z. And then he just didn't say anything and moved on. And I was like, okay. That was weird what I said, but he didn't, it didn't do anything. You know, I think we're so afraid that if I do this, this person going to have this huge, dramatic, evil reaction. And that's probably like 1% of the cases that that'll happen. And most people will just be like, oh, okay, it's kind of weird, but let's move on. And so the challenge I want to give you, or invitation I want to give you, is uh, talk about your real relationship with Jesus, not just religious beliefs or behavior. Like he's talk, Peter says in chapter 1, 6, and 7, you're, you love him. You trust him. Talk about following him, how you're thankful for him, uh, how he's teaching you, how you're listening to him, that you're talking about him as a real person that they could actually meet and be introduced to. And I just am trying to look at my life and being, how do I filter what I say? What do I, how do I make things easier for others to accept that will be less weird? And you know, really, it's easiest to be proud of things that others will easily accept. And so we can have a time, hard time with this. And so the, you know, the main thing that we've talked about earlier in the year is be the real you. And the real you, you are weird. Uh, Peter says it in this letter. You're strangers, exiles, foreigners. Uh, you don't belong to this world. You're citizens of a different place. We are uh, literally people who have our, we're, we're immigrants. I don't know. We're not immigrants. But, you know, we're people that are from a different kingdom living within this kingdom. And so... That, should make, that does make us weird. So commit to it. Uh, commit to being weird. Accept it. Accept who you are, an exile, stranger, sojourner, foreigner. And if you feel like you need to preface things instead of saying, Jesus is teaching me this, say, well, as a follower of Jesus, you know, Jesus, you know, I trust him, or you know, whatever it is. That can help make it a little softer, I found. But you know, sometimes we might be in a job that we hate, and you might see somebody still going through that job with joy and not being stressed out about it or grumpy. And you're like, man, you just know this bothers you. Why doesn't it bother you? And it's like, I'm just looking forward to that retirement. And it's kind of like they're looking at the future. Or you might have had a horrible week and things are stressful and you're thinking, but the weekend's coming and I'm you know, going to the city to you know, have fun or whatever. 
And so we can, uh, we can be in a place where it's like, I know people aren't, not everyone's going to accept me. What other people think of me is that I'm weird. But you know what? I have this joy because it's like, I've got this future hope. Uh, that's what it means to have this hope. And this big theme that Peter has is why he keeps talking about hope is that hope fuels holiness. Hope fuels weirdness. Uh, hope fuels differentness. Because our hope is not in earthly stuff, but in heavenly stuff. Our hope is not in uh, earthly status, but in heavenly status. And we're giving up what's perishable and defiled and fading about this world. And we're giving up for what is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, Peter says. And it's kept in heaven for you. And you are being kept for it that you have this hope that is beyond anything this world has to offer. And so we can go through life joyful, even in suffering, uh, for being a Christian because we're looking forward to I'm going to stand before Jesus and he's going to welcome me with open arms and say well done good and faithful servant this has all been prepared for you I've been waiting to give it to you I'm pretty sure in one of the earlier messages in this series I shared this quote but it's very applicable to the whole book uh, Jim Elliot a missionary who died trying to reach the people that he believed he was sent to reach um, said this he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. That's basically what Jesus said, is that uh, if you're trying to save yourself, you're going to forfeit your soul. And what good is it to gain the whole world, all the worldly stuff, all the worldly status, if you've lost your soul? And so he says, deny yourself now, take up your cross daily, and follow me suffering, and then I'm going to welcome you with open arms into glory. Let's pray. Father, we have such a hard time sometimes looking beyond right now what we have, what people think, uh, where we belong. And so, Lord, would you help us to just look further down the timeline, further into the future? Would you let our hope be fully set on what your Son is going to give to us, that what we have through him Lord, would you help us to be weird in Jesus' name? Lord, would you help us to talk about our relationship with him in real ways, uh, so that he's a real person that we really know? In your son's name we pray. Amen.